Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Lester Savage. Lester is the author of Becoming a Biomechanically Sober, Seven Steps to Increase Health, Happiness, and Unlock the Superhuman Within You, helping you to tap into your evolutionary legacy and become biomechanically sober. So welcome on to the show, Lester. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, James. So before we delve into the show, Lester, can we kind of go back in terms of so the listeners can kind of see where you've come from and how you kind of evolved to writing the book? Yeah, sure, not a problem. So it started, it's really peculiar when you look back because when you're back there, you have no idea obviously where you're going to go. I think Steve Jobs said, it's only when you're at a certain place that you can look back and connect the dots. So it's always quite surreal when I, when I connect those um, because, yeah, the, there was no other place for me to go but here um so my journey started about eight years ago I was about um I was just over seven stone heavier than I am now so I mean when you're getting out of breath grating cheese you know you're not <laughs> the healthiest guy on the planet right um but it didn't take long for me to start suffering from depression anxiety which is obviously one of the big epidemics nowadays and um, so I was locking myself up in my room I was lying to friends and family and um, I remember living in this tiny tiny studio flat um which was just to give you an idea of how small it was i was paid about 200 pounds a month in rent for a studio flat so we're not talking a mansion here and i remember um i was lying on my bed and i could literally reach the oven from my bed and i could pull it down and and cook my food while in bed so I, i say to people that breakfast in bed wasn't a luxury for me it was a necessity it was the only way i was eating um but I was absolutely miserable and obviously mental health there's been a little bit more awareness about it over the last four years I think but eight years ago I didn't really know what was happening I didn't really know until probably a few years later that I was actually suffering from depression anxiety I just knew that I felt numb I knew that I had no energy I knew that I just felt ashamed but even deeper than that like a lot of people who have depression or anxiety I genuinely believed that was just the way that I was wired, that maybe I just, I'd forgotten all the times that I felt happy. I'd forgotten all the times that I felt healthy because I used to be a lot healthier before that time as well. So I just assumed that there was something wrong with me. Um, so I, being probably a curious bugger, <laughs> just was desperate to start, start finding out some answers to, as to what I could do about it because I, I, there's, there's a point that I think most people hit in, in life, hopefully hit at least, that I call threshold which is the world doesn't have to completely shift for someone just three things have to change one is they realize that something has to change the second thing is they realize that something is them and the third thing is they realize it has to happen now so it got to a point where I hit essentially I call it rock bottom threshold doesn't have to be rock bottom but that was kind of where I hit so I could either keep living a a numb life if you like feeling like I was in a body that wasn't mine or I could go do something about it and and thankfully I chose the latter so I ended up delving into it started off in the personal development 
um, industry. So I started delving into a load of books that way. And, and I loved personal development and I still do. In fact, that's still technically the industry, I suppose, that I'm in. Um, but a lot of the time there were these really amazing, beautiful claims that people were making saying, you can do anything. And it was really motivational. But there wasn't necessarily the strategies. There wasn't necessarily a roadmap that I could follow to help me get out of the slump that I was in to start feeling like an optimal human, to start living at peak performance, if you like. So people would say, you, you know, you can do anything. You're capable of anything. And, and I'd say, ah, there's, what's the evidence for that? So I, I started delving more into the neuroscience aspects and the biology behind it, um, understanding biochemically what's happening in the body. Um, I started delving into the anthropology. So what's, you know, w- you know, where the hell did we evolve from and why is it that we have the bodies and the brains that we do today? And that ended up sort of unveiling some incredible answers in itself. Um, I started qualifying, training, and immersing myself in a number of different talking therapies. So I um, I looked at, I basically learned hypnosis, I learned neurolinguistic programming, solution-focused psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, you name it. I wanted to become a mental health expert. Um, but again, it's great. The moment you figure out how to control this lovely apparatus in your head, that's amazing. But there's a lot more to it when it comes to holistic health and optimal performance, isn't there? So I started delving into the nutrition and the exercise aspects. And then I started delving into spirituality as well. Now, I'm not religious. I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm spiritual. But people were able to get some amazing results when they were studying spirituality. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about that. So I, I, tr- I went to Poland. And I, I trained with a Dutch daredevil called Wim Hof, um, who at the time um, has become quite famous uh, recently. Um, for enduring cold he's basically a cold exposure athlete where he can he's i think he's got about 30 world records nowadays where you know most people get hypothermia and die if they're in a block of ice for 20 minutes to an hour and he was able to spend two hours in a block of ice and his core temperature wasn't dropping so being an absolute superhero nut i wanted to meet this guy and find out what he was doing and how he was doing it because he was baffling scientists there's um there's a few different studies where and there's one in Radboud University, I think in 2012, 2013, where he was injected, injected with an E. coli vaccine, but he was consciously controlling his immune system. And then he was teaching other people to do the same. And then when they measured it against a control group, all of those were getting the symptoms, but the people who had learned his method weren't getting any symptoms. So I went there and I, and I learned his method. And within days, I was climbing mountains, you know, like Snowden, Scaffold Pike, Mount Schneeska, which is taller than Ben Nevis, in minus 15 degrees, wearing absolutely nothing but shorts and shoes, feeling fine when I used to, you know, shiver just getting out of the shower, you know. So, so I went from being able, within a few years, of being out of breath, great and cheese, literally, I couldn't tie my own shoelaces, to being able to hold my breath for over five minutes. And being able to do these incredible things with my body and my brain that I didn't really know was possible. But when you delve into the science, it's not unique to an individual. Anyone can do this. So what I did is I started to pull upon the threads of what I've been learning for the last couple of years. And started applying them not only just to myself, obviously, but I started coaching other people. Um, and the results were were staggering um, because, again, when you've delved into neuroscience to living in a Buddhist center for the last year and a half, which I've been doing, it, 
it doesn't matter um, who you are. You'd have to be blind at that point not to recognize there are patterns that are linking them. So, so that's, that's what I did. I sort of pulled upon the patterns that were linking them and, and I've started, I've, I've, I've referred to it now as the primal life method, which is seven principles to becoming biochemically sober. And all I really mean by that is being able to alter our biochemistry. So we're in line with what our genes were expecting because you and I, whether we like it or not, we're cavemen living in the 21st century. Our bodies haven't changed for 200,000 years anatomically, genetically. So the moment we realize that, the moment we realize the hardware and the software that's built into our bodies, well, then we know how to alter that so we can become happier and healthier. And I've just given you the longest answer of all time there, James. Sorry about that. No worries. No, it kind of links well to my next question, Lester. In terms of, obviously, we are genetically suited to being caveman. Mm. Obviously, other facets of our, well, you could say being, has evolved, in your opinion, why don't you think uh, our eating habits, not uh, so our eating habits, but anatomically, why haven't we adapted to our environment from an eating perspective? Yeah, great question. And the reason is, is that 10,000 years, which is how long we've been in agricultural society, it seems like a really long time. I, I can't fathom how long 10,000 years is. But in the grand scheme of things, when we're looking at on the scale of an evolutionary time period, that is, that is nothing. That's a glitch. That's a, that's a second with how long it takes our bodies to evolve. So it's only in the last hundred years that we've really started to change our diets to these processed foods. So, so that's essentially the reason why our bodies can't keep up with the external environment that's changing. We've, we've gotten to a point where we don't need to evolve anymore. We don't need to change anything internally because everything else externally has changed. Um, so, and, and you see that. You know, we've got a part of our brain called the nucleus accumbens. If we have processed sugar, it lights up. You know, we, it's like fireworks are going on in our brain the moment that we're having processed sugar, which is good if you're a caveman that has no idea when they're going to have their next meal. That's a really, really great bit of software to have in your brain. But when you know, you're going around the shops and about 80% of the foods there have this component in, well, then it's like you've let a cocaine addict on the, on the rampage when inside every building there's cocaine. It's only going to take a matter of time before people are going to start becoming obese. But then, like, like you're saying, it's, it's like a microcosm to a certain extent where we're at now. But is it a case of, obviously, we can't, change that process because it's going to take probably millions of years to adapt mm. but is it would from your perspective would it be a case of educating like you've said to be aware of uh, well, you and i know there's going to be the, the case of sugar and well virtually every product on the shelf mm. but educating people to be not wary of the marketing on a packaging but to question it absolutely it's it's incredible that you know we're living in a time where you say to people do you know where your food's coming from and 99.9 percent of people will say no not a not a clue you look on the back of the ingredients packet and a lot of these chemicals seem like sci-fi spells <laughs> i had no idea a lot of what, what, you know most of these chemicals are but um but, but i i think you're absolutely on the right track there it's health education that we that we need because the moment that someone truly understands emotionally that 
how food is going to affect them emotionally, physically, um, then, then they have at least the education, they have the capacity to make smarter decisions then. Whereas actually, if you have no idea how this is going to affect your body, well then why wouldn't you keep taking that next hit of something that makes the fireworks go, go off upstairs? I think you raise a good point in terms of it looking at it from a, an emotional sense rather than say a health perspective because if we take like we've been talking about take sugar into it as the example mm. that's a definite one you're going to have a mood swing because you're going to have that obviously the, the arousal level on a high yeah and depending on well your what's the word i'm looking for um oh i can't think of it but your tolerance towards it is obviously the well the more and more you take of it you're going to become that the effects are going to be more and more minimal so you're going to have to take more to get the same we'll call it dosage and that in some cases that downward spiral is going to be even greater yeah and and that's something that a lot of people forget it's you know the reason i call it biochemically sober is because most of us are biochemically drunk and by that i mean that if you've been having sugar for a long period of time it's a little bit like if someone started off like you said, with maybe they were drinking one can of beer every day and then they started drinking two cans of beer every day after the first couple of months. And this happened for years. Well, they'd still be functioning. They'd still be walking, but that would become the new norm for them to the point where a friend of mine a couple of years ago who was an alcoholic, he had his first, I think, I remember the first time that he stopped drinking and he after about two weeks, the first time that he'd gone that long without a drink, he said, it's amazing. So I just, my memory is, is it feels so good now. And my energy is great. And I, and he felt in that moment, superhuman. But the truth is he was just sober. Like his, his baseline had become so subhuman for such a long period of time that yeah, the moment that he started to come off the alcohol, he felt amazing. And it's the exact same thing when people are having a lot of these processed items after a while, we just assume that maybe it's natural to need an energy drink or to need a hit of caffeine at 3 p.m. And we assume that actually being able to you know, have just as much energy from when you wake up to the moment you go to sleep, um, that, that, that at first seems poss- impossible. But actually, all of us are supposed to be living like that. Um, but, it, but it's hard because, again, we've been conditioned on this road for so long. Um, but yeah, we, we we forgot where our true baseline is, which is normally a lot higher than where most of us are performing at. But I think in terms of saying, having the same energy level from when you get up to go into sleep is probably a precursor to, well, you could say the industrial revolution and it's kind of magnified in the, Mm -hmm. in the modern sense, because it's kind of like a factory. It's always never ending. So it's, they want to keep the cogs turning. So I think, from a, a well-being perspective, I think people have maybe lost that, like the, the the essence of finding, like you said, the the, the baseline. Because you talk about, or oh, what would we now say? Two hundred years ago, we, we didn't have electricity, so you're going to have to go to sleep at some point. Whereas now, you've got lights twenty-four-seven. So yeah, in theory, we could do what we well not everybody, but the civilization could work twenty-four-seven. Well, that's it. And, and mind you, I, I refer to something like that, like you just mentioned perfectly, um, about light and electricity. That in itself is an evolutionary mismatch. So the moment that you take someone like 
someone like us who have got these caveman bodies and you pop them in the 21st century, well, sometimes our genes or the way that our, the software in our brains wired, the moment that you pop those in, in a society where our genes aren't ready for that, everything's not necessarily going to be in sync with each other. And we have a huge sleep epidemic at the moment where people are getting nowhere near enough sleep because they're subjected to so much artificial light that it's actually taking their hormones out of balance. Um, We're supposed to be living so in line with how the sun is rising and dropping. Um, Same with temperature as well. But the moment that we've artificially changed the temperature in our room, the moment that we've changed the light sources that we're using... Well, our hormones aren't left to do what they're supposed to be doing naturally perfectly, which is to be able to start to release this lovely level of melatonin in our body at a particular time. Suddenly, the moment that we've got blue light in our faces up until 9, 10, 11 p.m., possibly later, depending on how late we're watching TV, we've been backtracking that hormone trying to get into our body, which means that we're stopping a signal we're stopping a signal that's supposed to be coming to us. Um, and you can only imagine if we're blocking a signal that's supposed to be coming to us for so long, we're going to suffer for it. And the moment that electricity came out, we were having between eight to 10 hours of sleep every night. The moment that the incandescent light bulb came out, that that started to drop down to around about seven, seven and a half. And now most people on average again, around about six hours of sleep per night. And that's average, which means that there are quite a few people getting a lot less and they're wondering why the hell they're stressed. Well, it's a, it's a big, it's probably a precursor. And that on top of other things, be it, like, I haven't even touched upon it, like nutrition. Mm. But like you say, a big proponent of that is going to be not getting enough sleep. That, that's right. And which is why in the book, I, I talk about seven principles and sleep is certainly one of them and nutrition. So I refer to it as fuel is, is another there's, there's quite a few big evolutionary mismatches that are happening in today's society that we've just taken by the by and, and and yeah, we're suffering for it. Mental health has been going up and up for the last several years because of this. Um, And so has um, health rates. I've been speaking to quite a few doctors over the last uh, few months and a common question that I ask them is, when people are coming to see you, what are the percentage of things that they come to see you with that you know could could have been prevented? And they said, you know, 90% plus. 90% was the most conservative number I heard. 95, 97% was more likely what people were saying. Things that could be prevented. So this is things like cancer, heart disease, diabetes, um, Alzheimer's, dementia. These are all things that are side effects because we're not paying attention to well, the software, the hardware that we're running around in. That's horrific, that is. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's a nightmare. Um, but, but something that we do have nowadays that, you know, our caveman ancestors didn't have, um, and you, you touched on it earlier when you, when you spoke about nutrition and that, that awareness now, is we can plug ourselves into the internet. We can start to use personalized systems to give us the individual benefits. There's, there's an incredible company at the moment. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, DNA Fit. Mm-mm. So what they do is when people talk about nutrition or fuel, it's very, very easy to say, go vegan, go paleo, you know, whatever, to cut out processed foods. And there's a, a gentleman, a biohacker called Ben Greenfield, who said, I will never, ever write a diet book unless I want to make some money, simply because there is no perfect diet for everyone. 
But what we're starting to have now, companies like DNA Fit, you could you can give them a saliva sample and they can actually map out your genome and start to look at the nutrigenomics of your individual body and try to work out what is James's shopping list. What, what are the foods that he can have? Because there might be so-called healthy foods, certain vegetables that you're eating that maybe with your particular genome could be giving you some sort of inflammatory effects that you have no idea about. So now instead of looking for a diet or having to essentially do a hell of a lot of your own research you can have the most personalized diet plan for you not on you know a way that a diet plan that would allow you to lose weight or gain muscle so burn fat or gain muscle but one that would be the best way to burn fat or gain muscle for you which is frankly the only one that matters and it's it's incredible but again this is something that our caveman ancestors never had but this technology is out there now well, I, that's a great tool that you, you mentioned there, Lester. I think it, like you said, with the, the well, it is technically anything that's an, well, not anti-inflammatory is a toxin. So I think if you were able to eliminate it in any way possible, I think it's a, probably a good thing. It, mm-hmm. If it can, well, it takes out that method of trial and error as well. So you're not, well, so to speak, wasting time. Yeah. You can kind of get from A to B as quickly as possible, which kind of suits the modern lifestyle. You, you got it. And, and I mean, if we've got that tool available, then, then why the hell wouldn't we use it? And, you know, when you go see a doctor now, if, if, you know, you need to be put on warfarin or a dose of any kind of medication, it can be a good month before they've found the right dose for you. So you can just, you, you're, you're having to do exactly what you said, that trial and error of, okay, are these are the side effects just too much for you? What's just right for you? Whereas the moment that we can start to move more into that personalized medical industry, which is coming, I think we're going to start to see more of it within about the next eight months. Um, suddenly we have to, that trial and error goes. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that self-experimentation won't still be a thing. That's the only way that we progress as a, you know, as a nation, as, as a planet. But, but to at least have those personalized options there where we can understand the inner workings of our body, that's, that's going to make for some amazing stuff in the future. But I think in terms of, you say medication, I think it's, it's a kind of a catch-22, so to speak, because well, most of the medication does more. Okay, it, it, it's, it's there for a purpose to keep you uh, alive and kicking, so to speak. But... On on the flip side of that, there's also this. Well, we we didn't touch upon the side effects, but the side effects of uh, causing obesity and and health problems as a result. And then in some cases, like more seriously, you're having to take more medication to counter side effects. Mm, That's right. So I I mean, I, I totally agree with that. You could use it for medication, but when I say medication, I don't necessarily just mean a pill. And um, can, you know, being as being in part of a community or being part of a tribe and feeling like you have a purpose of value to give someone that in itself could be a form of medication. Um, having the right fuel, you know, being able to ingest the right fuel so your body can actually work at its optimum, that in itself could be a type of medication to heal you. And um, the right exercise plan that allows you to move in the way that's right for your body mechanically right now. Again, that in itself could be medication. So, so I'm, I'm not, fully against the idea of um of different types of drugs but i feel like if we can at least try the natural method first that has zero side effects then normally it's worth giving a shot 
Well, I would I would say in most cases that's probably the last resort that resulted to the medication because if yeah. you can, it's kind of a different topic altogether going over to that side. But if you can solve it with, as you mentioned, those three tools, in most cases you probably you probably wouldn't ever get down that avenue in the first place. Yeah, um, when I when people come see me at my clinic at the moment. Um, and they, it's normally for a more stress-related condition as opposed to a physical ailment. I'm just not trained for that side of things. But the moment that I go through my list of, okay, well, let's have a look at some of your habits. What's your sleep pattern like? What, what's your community body? How much are you moving? You connect in with people. Um, actually, what are you thinking about most of the time? Um, how are you breathing at the moment? All these little things. The moment um, that I delve into them, I haven't come across one person who said, no, no, I do all of those things. I do all of those things absolutely perfectly and I still feel like crap. <laughs> not, not one person has done that. Um, so I'm quite interested to find a case where someone is doing essentially following method where we know that it's going to definitely affect their biochemistry in a positive way, but they'll feel crap. Um, I think that would be really, really interesting. So, so again, if, if anyone listening here, if you have looked, in the, looked at my book, if you've looked at the Primal Life Principles, if you follow those things and still awful, then I'd love to have a conversation because, because it means that there's a whole new realm of understanding that we need to delve into. But then last side, I, I think like, like you mentioned, I think the breathing technique, and I did that uh, show on it oh gosh i can't remember what episode it is but it's quite a way back and the importance of just getting the breathing technique right uh, for multiple essences of well your well-being is probably to a certain extent not looked at in a greatly importance as it probably should do because you kind of in most cases think nothing of it i don't have to uh, think about what I'm doing because it's a it's an automatic process that it's going to be done. No matter, if you think about your breathing, obviously you can control it, but you can only control it for so long before it, the, the body's going to take over. Okay, it's time to breathe again now, and 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 it's, it becomes autonomous again. So I think because it is that kind of process, I think people probably just forget about it. Or I, I'm breathing this way. There's nothing I can do about it, and 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 in all reality. There's probably loads of ways, well, not from maybe from a sporting perspective, but in just day-to-day living. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's true. I think people forget how bi-directional breathing can be. So very often, I was always under the impression that, well, actually, if I'm feeling panicky, if someone has a panic attack, their breathing is going to change. Um, and I thought that until I learned how to scuba dive and I just, I think like most people, breathing underwater, I thought, well, I'm not Aquaman. What the hell am I doing? And I would just start freaking out underneath the water. And I was being taught at the time by this tiny, tiny little French man called Paul. <laughs> and, and I said, Paul, I'm trying to breathe and I can't take another breath in. What's happening? And he said, and I'm, I'm not going to do the French accent. <laughs> Um, but he was saying that essentially because I'd been breathing in so much and I hadn't been exhaling, um, that I'd been packing up so much oxygen in my body that by not being able to get that next breath in, my body was freaking out thinking that there was no oxygen in my body. 
So he said, if you're going to do this, you've got to make sure you keep focusing on your exhales because what's happening is when you freak out, yeah, you obviously it's an autonomic nervous system thing, but you start to jump into that sympathetic nervous system. You start to jump into that fight flight mode. All you can do is the moment you start focusing on your exhales, whether it's breathing in for four seconds and breathing out for six seconds or breathing in for two seconds, breathing out for three, you can actually start to switch very, very quickly from the sympathetic nervous system, the fight flight response to the parasympathetic nervous system, which allows you to calm down. So something that I normally talk to people about when we're talking with in the realms of breathing is, well, right now, if we're sitting here having a conversation and we decide to take a minute out and start just counting the amount of breaths that we're taking in a minute. If you've been at the desk and you, you've just done an exercise where you've timed the amount of breaths you've taken in a minute and you've taken more than 20 breaths, well then, yeah, you're sitting down. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, you're at work. That's okay. But there is a part of your body that thinks it's being chased by a saber-toothed tiger right now. So by just taking another minute or two minutes to start breathing consciously and to start slowing down that breath, at least in that moment, we're giving our body a break and we're moving into the parasympathetic nervous system. Um, so I, I do agree, a lot of people don't give breath the importance that it is. But like I said earlier, I was looking at spirituality. People forget that spirituality comes from the Latin word spiritus, which just means breath. Um, meditation, it's all about being able to focus back to your breath. Um, so the moment that we want to be able to enter either a peak performance state where we want to be ready on the track or whether we just want to feel tranquil in the most stressful of all moments, well, breath is the key to the door of our physiology. So being able to go straight into our breath, that's the quickest hack I know to being able to change our mental state. But why do you think, um, you raised a good point there with meditation, why do you think people, I, I, I won't probably go out and generalize just so much, but kind of shun it. To, I think there's probably a less of that to some degree nowadays, but why do people still, it's probably more towards the spirit, spirit, Oh, I can't speak, spirituality of it more so than maybe the mindfulness. That's probably more towards mindfulness than, than the actual meditation. But why do you think that is the case? Um, well, f- first of all, breathing isn't sexy. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's, it's, you can't really package up breathing to be the most amazing performance tool. Um, same, as, same as exercise, actually. Unless you... I don't know, selling some sort of amazing, cool, badass supplement alongside it. It's very, very hard to say, hey, you want to change your life? Have you ever thought about breathing? Because the natural response to that is, well, sort of. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's, it's not sexy. And I think in a society where we're used to only getting the answers from these really bright colors and these really, um, really glorious ads, someone, you know, swarming in and saying, hey, listen, have you ever thought about just slowing your breath down? People aren't going to take that seriously at first, but like anything that I'm saying in this podcast, don't just take my word for it. Go try it yourself and you'll see the difference. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a big one. There's, there's a, girl, um, a girl who came to see me. She, 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 I think she stopped seeing me about a month ago who was having panic attacks all the time. And the biggest takeaway that she had was being able to start consciously changing her breath and the panic attack would stop instantly. And she'd been having panic attacks for about four years. The moment she learned this tool, it just stopped overnight. Um, it's a very, very handy tool. It's not sexy, um, but sometimes you know, being the optimal performance is not about trying to do what's sexy. It's about trying to do what just works. 
Well, I think uh, the sporting term is that 1%, and obviously that at that level, it's the difference between winning and losing. I think maybe, uh, well, if you took it down a couple of notches and take it to, say, the the, the regular athlete, that that 1% is massive. Because yeah. it would be, well, you could say 5%, it could be more, depending on the person. Yeah. And I mean, if you were to do, are you familiar with the, with the Wim Hof breathing technique? or any yogic breathing or anything like that. It, it's, it's essentially controlled hyperventilating with a few retentions uh, in between. Um, so there, there, is a, there is a guided video that I do on YouTube uh, that I can send you afterwards if you like. It's not a problem. But essentially by taking in large amounts of oxygen and alkalizing the body in that instant and reducing the CO2, the amount that your endurance goes up over a long period of time is extraordinary. The just, I mean, it's very anecdotal evidence, but even just when I've been going for a run, when I haven't been doing the breathing competitive, I do a few rounds of this breathing beforehand. Um, my energy level is so much more consistent for, and it, I mean, it's, it's better for long distance usually. Um, but over that time, yeah, the, the, the amount, um, it will take a lot longer for lactic acid to build up. It, 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 it's helpful. <laughs> it's good. Keep breathing for God's sake, you know? <laughs> Well, I think I, I, I think it's if you can from well, even if you take the sporting context out of it, if you can reduce lactic acid in everyday life, yeah. it's gonna it's gonna solve a lot of issues. Well, that's right, and and people forget how acidic a state we can get ourselves into, even when we're not exercising. Just just thinking negatively, which just sounds like such a simple thing, but we. This biochemistry. I only have to imagine something going wrong tomorrow and I can start to feel worried, right? And having chronic levels of cortisol and adrenaline trapped in my body is going to allow for my body to become really acidic. So if I can do something that in that moment can at least help alkalize it, at least help make the pH go a little bit higher so I can clear the cortisol out a bit more effectively, then that's a really handy tool to have in this day and age. And, uh, and that's, if we come back onto that initial point we talked about with sugar, and obviously it's a flight, of, uh, flight or fight response. Do you think because, and it's probably a little bit of a generalization, because kids are so um, dependent on it in their lifestyle, do you think it's even from a biochemical uh, reaction they become more and more dependent on it and obviously they're less able to control their emotions as a result or do you think that's too much of a generalized generalization i mean there's definitely there's definitely a link between i know processed food and emotions we know that actually for a lot of people who are depressed or for a lot of people who are anxious at the moment generally it doesn't have much to do with the brain well, certainly not indirectly it's more to do with the gut and the moment that we have gut inflammation, which it can be caused beautifully by large levels of processed sugar and also a lot of um, processed grains, well, as the gut is more likely to encounter other pathogens, um, sorry, to encounter more pathogens than any other part of the body bar the skin, people forget that the gut's responsible for about 70% of the immune system. So if we are taking in something that's toxic, too right we want our gut to be able to send off these stress signals to other parts in the body and one of the ways it does that is it sends a stress signal through something called the vagus nerve to the brain 
which is when people start to feel brain fog, the moment we've had a big meal and we just can't think straight or start to feel sleepy, because the brain doesn't have much feeling itself, and you know, if you, if you take in too much alcohol, your body tells you very, very quickly, your gut tells you there's poison here. The brain's not very good at doing that. So the moment that we're getting brain fog, the moment that we can't think as clearly, the moment that we're feeling a little bit sleepy, that's, that's brain inflammation caused by gut inflammation. Um, there was a study just to show how powerful the gut and the brain are, are intertwined. They call the gut the second brain for this reason. It's that um, the experiment that I'm referring to, I forgot which university did it, so do, do forgive me. They, um, they were looking at how probiotics and changing the, the gut microbiome can change the brain. And they got a group to have um, yogurt with probiotics in them. They got a second group to have yogurt without probiotics in them. And they got a third group to do nothing to, as a, essentially a control group. What they found out is that four weeks later, when they were looking under an MRI machine, or sorry, a functional MRI machine, and they were um, subjecting the um, participants to really stressful images that would cause a stressful response, the group that had, had the probiotics were having a, a much more reduced um, stress response to these shocking images than the other two groups. So just by changing the gut microbiome, we were seeing serious changes in neurological activity to the way that we're actually perceiving stress. Um, so if we're loading up kids with a lot of sugar, a lot of processed foods, essentially anything that can cause gut inflammation, yeah, it's hard to knock someone out of that mentality because we know that the gut is affecting the brain directly. Well, it's, uh, it probably comes back to the essence of, educating people and giving them the tools to be able to go out and do it for themselves as opposed to saying, well, this is what's black and white. This is what I'm going to tell you. You must do this. Which yeah. I think, I, I think that is the perceived outlook from the outside of say the, the, what we'll call it the wellness, um, uh, oh, the wellness kind of environment. Yeah. And I think maybe cause stuff, that is bad for quote unquote bad for you. It's yeah. so cheap. It's trying to change that perspective and teach people well, healthy food is not in the grand scheme of it that expensive. It's gonna lot and I think I had a discussion with somebody over the weekend about this. In the grand scheme of things, it's gonna something that's better for you is gonna last a lot longer yeah. than say a, a ready meal, because ready meal okay, for one day it's gonna be cheaper, but Fruit, fruit and veg, or just use that as the example, is going to last you. Well, will be minimalistic and say a, a week minimum. Yeah, yeah, it's. It, it, I, I completely agree with that, and 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 there's definitely a difference, isn't there, between knowing something logically and knowing it emotionally. The, the, the example I normally give people is, you know, you only have to watch a smoker buy a packet of cigarettes. Now, most smokers in this country, most people in this country can read, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look down, it says they're plain black and white. This cigarette, you know, this is going to kill you. And not only that, it's going to harm others around you. Now, we know that not all smokers are suicidal. And we know that all, not all smokers hate their kids, right? <laughs> but, but logically, they understand that. Emotionally, they haven't gauged it. There hasn't been enough pain 
linked to the idea of smoking. There hasn't been enough pleasure linked to the idea of becoming a non-smoker. So, so, so I completely agree with that. By just saying to someone, oh, by the way, that's quite bad for you. <laughs> Chances are that's not going to make the difference with someone. You know, if, if I went up to a smoker now and said, have you, do you know that's, that's going to kill you one day? It's, I'd be very, very surprised if they said, God, you're right, what am I doing? And just throwing the pack in the bin. It's, it's not going to happen. Okay. And same, people come to see me when they're having phobic responses. So people who just can't stand the idea of getting on a plane and saying, they, you know, okay, I want you to book your flight tonight. Even that alone can give them a panic attack. If I were to say to someone, hey, you know that fear that you've got, you don't need to be afraid of it anymore. That, that's not going to do anything. Logically, we can understand that. It's emotionally where we need to make the change. So if we're doing it for children, by being able to um, sync that with some sort of positive reinforcement, by allowing them to notice how much better they're feeling in their emotions, in their energy, in their sleep, in their lack of stress, um, in their body. You know, but when we're seeing transformations in our body, that's a really exciting thing. Um, there's a friend who I go to uh, the gym with at the moment and he, four months ago, he never would have stepped inside it. But nowadays he's looking at himself and he's doing things with his body that he didn't think he was ever capable of doing. He couldn't lift his own body weight. The other day I saw him like a bloody Marine <laughs> on the chin ups <laughs> and, um, and that alone gave him enough pleasure to want to keep going. And um, I remember the first time where he decided to try and have a cheat day and try and not go to the gym. Well, he, he just felt sluggish and it felt awful. And suddenly there was this pain linked to it. Whereas beforehand he would have been absolutely fine, but because he'd at least felt the pleasure of what it felt like to have that progress and then suddenly had the pain of not going and feeling sluggish. Well, then he understood on an emotional level as opposed to just a logical level, how powerful those changes can be. So you're saying that if you, if you, from my understanding, if you didn't have that experience of, what you quote unquote joy. Yeah. You can't feel the negative. So, so if I said to somebody, Oh, this is not, not so to speak, it's going to harm you, but there's the, well, if you take food as an example here in terms of the toxin that's got, that's going to bring, there is going to be some, uh, sense of inflammation that's going to, well, if we use processed foods, it's probably a good, a good example of that. It's going to cause inflammation. It's because they've not uh, experienced a healthier diet, quote unquote. They won't get the full benefit from an emotional perspective. I mean, I mean, other than children, it's very, very hard to change someone's behaviour unless they, unless they're ready. And like I said at the beginning, when I was telling you about my story, I was the only person who could have made that decision. Um, which is why in, in my clinic, I, I never give, give advice to people because the moment that we try to give advice, even if it's true, even if it's going to save their life, it's very unlikely that someone's going to take that in unless they've asked for it in the first place. So I think the best thing that anyone could do who'd be listening to this, if they want to maybe help make a change in, in others, then the best thing to do is instead of become a teacher, to become the example instead. So if someone can see, oh my God, this, this guy didn't have energy before and now he's got all this energy or Jesus, look at the way that his body's changed or how is it that James is able to stay so calm in all these stressful situations? Well, then suddenly that's a lot more attractive because they can see the pleasure that you're getting from it and then linking to that, to their own pain that they're receiving at the moment. So the moment that someone starts to ask you, 
how are you able to do that? Or what are you thinking in that moment that allows you to act that way? That's when it's time that maybe we can, instead of give them advice, just relay what our patterns are and they'll want to model that from you. But could you get and the same process, Lester, if they question themselves? In, in, in what sense? Um, you, you said it was until you actually came to terms with it, I would, t- I, I would say probably it's similar in essence when you start to question your own, not beliefs, but the way you are acting day to day from a habitual state, be it you're not, I would even term this, you could say happy or content with where you are at the moment and you want to change that. Would you say that would be similar? It's, I mean, in, in the wellness industry, in the personal development industry, there is a, a bit of a bad habit of telling people that they're not good enough when they are. Um, so I always say it's only a problem if it's a problem. If someone doesn't have a six pack or, you know, can't run for four hours straight or um, actually feels okay with being grumpy three times a week and they, they're okay with that, well, then it's not really a problem. It's, it's only a problem if it's a problem. If there's something that someone wants to change, then there's only two things that are really going to do that. Either they have to have enough pain to get them to avoid the situation that they're in to never go back or to have enough of a compelling idea of what they want to aim towards. And um, so something that I do, something that was done to me that, that really made this change when I was ready. Um, so, so I had to be in that state in the first place to, to be accepting and ready to change this is uh, he sat down with me and it was, it was for my weight at the time. And he said, write down a list of all the reasons, uh, first of all, what it is that you want to aim towards as opposed to what you want to aim away from. So saying I don't want to be fat anymore isn't, isn't anything to aim towards. That's not a goal. I need to have a vision to actually understand what I was aiming towards. Um, and then he said, now tell me all the painful reasons as to why staying where you are you know, is, is unacceptable. And he, he <laughs> I still remember it really clearly because it was a big, it was a big change. And he put on, um, I think it was the Gladiator um, theme music, so the Hans Zimmerman soundtrack. So at first I thought, ah, oh, you corny bastard, what are you doing? But slowly, after a few minutes, I started getting a little bit into it. And I started writing this list. And I had about, I think, 10, 15 things on there. And I said, right, I said, I'm, I'm done. And he, said, and he looked at me and he said, there's more. I said, no, I, that's it. He said, dig deeper. And as I kept digging deeper, eventually I came across the real reason why there was, why there was enough pain, why, why I just couldn't stay where I was. And I said, okay, you've got it. I said, yeah. I said, I've got it. And I was almost, I was you know, ready to well up at this point. So I know that I touched a nerve emotionally, which meant that I was ready to make that decision. And he said, right. He said, now we need to find out all the reasons why going on this journey that you're about to embark on is going to bring you all this joy. And again, the exact same thing. I came up with about 15 things. I said, there you go, I'm done. He said, no, you're not, keep going. And again, suddenly it got to the point where I could almost be welling up with tears because I was so excited to go on this journey. So, so we, as much as we'd love to be able to take action on logic, it just doesn't happen. We have to be emotionally driven. It has to be a gut feeling. We have to have that hunger, which means that either we have to have enough pain to get us to move, either we have to be desperate or we have to be truly inspired. 
Again, probably one of the longest winded answers that you weren't ready for, James. Sorry about that. Oh, we got there in the end. We got there in the end. Yes, we but, did. But why, why do you think then, if we kind of come put it in the sporting context, that those individuals don't, well, they probably have a hardship to a certain extent, be it where they've come from or something like that. But why are they so determined to, to want to succeed then, to, from a, uh, an emotional standpoint then? What is the, or is it come case by case? It, it, it's, it's case by, by, by case for that. I mean, every single sports person, they will have a hunger there and and they're being driven by pain or pleasure either it's being driven by this pain of if i stay where i am i won't be good enough and if i won't be good enough i won't be accepted by all my peers because if you're in the um especially if you're an athlete chances are a lot of your friends are going to be athletes as well it's very unusual that you're going to be really into sports and really ready to go all out and to have no one else that's completely passionate about the same thing so there's going to be this standard that you and the, and the five closest people are going to have to you when it comes to competing. So that could have been the, that could have started by accident where maybe those were the people who you became friends with at school or college or university. It doesn't matter. And um, it could be that, um, you know, someone could have sucked at absolutely everything else at school. And the only way that they could find a purpose, the only way that they could find a way that would give them significance or value or certainty or something that at least gave them the emotional need to feel like they would always be able to progress in it. Maybe that was being fulfilled, which gave them some sort of pleasure. Maybe it was the first time that they won something in sports day. And that was the first time that they'd maybe their parents had given them some sort of, I don't know, um, love that they maybe hadn't had before. And suddenly that was the day that the achiever was born. Um, it, it's always down to pain and pleasure, but the actual, yeah, it, the, the actual substance of it would be on an individual case by case basis. Um, but generally, normally if you ask people, I'm sure there was probably a moment for yourself where suddenly you realized this, this, this is for me. This is something that I'm really willing to, to go for. And there would have been some sort of hunger there of either the pain of not going for it or the pleasure that you'd get from being able to be successful with it. Um, you pose a good question then <laughs> in terms of how they even go about answering it. Um, I think maybe my upbringing and say my family, well, how would I even word it? Family background would probably have something to do with it because it was, it's, I come from a very sporty family anyway. Yes. So it's it probably ingrained in the DNA to some, to some extent. And I think, well, it's probably a generalization that most young boys, they want to do some sort of sport at a later life. So I think that hunger, you always want to uh, get to a certain point. Okay. For everybody, it's not possible because that's, that's only being realistic. I think maybe at a young age, you could say young boys, say young boys and young girls are probably maybe a little bit delusional because if it was that easy to make it in professional realm, most people wouldn't do it. And I think, why I made it maybe at the elite level. Um, I think once it was, I was kind of progressing in the right way. I think that was the, the, the motivational factor is okay. This is quite enjoyable. I'm, I'm kind of going places. I think to put it into context for the listener. And once I had made it to the top, I think the travel, the travel is very much, uh, 
makes it look, look, look not luxurious but lucrative that's kind of the, the the guiding factor in terms you get to go to places you may have never dreamt of yeah and and when it comes to the purpose or the reason that we're doing anything people forget that in itself can be an evolutionary trait that can be a genetic idea because we we again are wired to be able to try and find a purpose for ourselves in life because you know we go about 14,000 years ago where I bang I'm a hunter gatherer nomad if I'm not the best mammoth hunter in the tribe if I can't give value to the, the people who I'm connecting with the most well then chances are they're not going to need me which means that suddenly if I'm not in the tribe my survival plummets dramatically so I need this little algorithm to say well how else can you give value how else can you be unique in the way that you do your life so you can at least give value to your tribe. So maybe if I wasn't the best mammoth hunter, that little algorithm that's set in my DNA would say, well, maybe you can be the best chef or maybe you can be the best mediator and you can be the, maybe you can be the best chief and you can be the leader of the tribe. And so it could have been that maybe someone did something that just fell in line with that. And the moment that they found what felt like their purpose, the way that they give value, the way that they feel most significant, um, yeah, too right you want to stay in line with that because if you suddenly stop doing what you're doing, it wouldn't take long, would it, to start to feel just wrong down to the core. Of, well, why, why am I not doing this anymore? If, it's the reason that um, you know, a lot of people come out of the forces or a lot of people retire early and they start to be depressed within a couple of weeks because they're not in line with their purpose anymore. They haven't been able to um, spend each day in line with giving purpose and value to the to the people closest to them. But unless there wouldn't it be a case, well, it's probably generalization, generalizing and, and thinking of myself as the example, but if you are able to transgress and do something within a certain, not certain time, uh, framework, but in terms of something similar, you're able to channel, challenge that energy to some extent to be able to, re how would I word this um reinvigorate yourself into another career but it is in essence very similar along the same lines um yeah well and and, and that's why I refer to it as an algorithm so so you weren't you weren't born the athlete you had an algorithm that allowed you to move into that and there'll probably be a day in the future where maybe that's not going to be the path for you but you've still got that algorithm so I completely agree that it could be something completely different you might become I don't know a playwright <laughs> or something in in two decades who knows but it's that algorithm it's that genetic coding of well I need to find some way to give value that that I, I at least feel works within my skill set and that allows me to maybe do it better than other competition. That, that, that it's still the algorithm that's there. We've maybe just pointed that and honed it into a different industry or a different profession. Or, you know, you might find that you want to become a stay-at-home dad one day. And actually, that's that's your mission. It's to become the best damn dad on the planet at that point. It, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter as long as you're happy and healthy at the end of it, right? But then why do some people coin it, uh, what would it be? You know, like you have a career change and they're saying you're kind of, you kind of off going off the beaten path, so to speak. You kind of chopping and changing, but then in this all mannerisms, not really, because you you'd find some minute similarities between 
jobs because otherwise, like you said, it's an algorithm. You you're not going off track completely. You want to find like even a minute similarity, or otherwise you wouldn't choose that. Uh, that's right. But also in an age where we're so connected, um, it's very very easy for, for competition to be a lot higher nowadays. So actually, if you were damn good in the sporting world, and actually if you found your place um, that gave you just the right amount of significance for you, it gave you just the amount of certainty, just the right amount of variety, just the right amount of progression every year that you needed to see. I mean, that, it, it's an algorithm that, that wants you to find that. But remember, people trying to find their purpose, it's not the easiest thing in the world to find. It's very hard for something to tick those boxes. It's not impossible for those boxes to be ticked in a multitude of different industries. Um, but I, I, I completely agree that you might find that people go into a job and they say, oh, I thought I was going to enjoy it, but no, it's just not for me because maybe their emotional needs aren't being met. Maybe they're not growing at the same rate that they were used to growing in the previous industry. Maybe they weren't connecting with their peers as much. Maybe actually... They were, you know, they were the badass in the in the previous industry, and they were kicking ass and taking names. And maybe in this industry, there's someone who maybe does that particular thing a little bit better than them that makes them feel less significant. Either way, the any action or any thought or any feeling that we have is always determined by whether we're having our emotional needs, or to be more scientific, our biochemical needs met. But then, in terms of that, we are somewhat programmed to look at oh, the journey throughout life as well, a conveyor belt to, to, to term it in on certain terms. You, 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 you are programmed to go to school, get a job and die. But obviously... <laughs> and, and, and good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but, but obviously not being so negative, but obviously... A lot within the, the um, lifestyle industry talk about obviously that's you shouldn't set out your life to be well I'll use the word negative but it's probably looking at it more so when in a factory setting you you are this is the only choice you have but like you said you it's you could say the school system doesn't help that because it's all about this is where you have to end up. And, uh, well, I think ours is probably one of the worst in Britain for probably doing that, because if you don't conform to what is the norm, you are, in in certain terms, I wouldn't say termed a failure, but you're kind of put to one side and then probably the extreme, which a lot of the countries are probably horrified, is the top level is probably probably put to one side. Okay, you're, you're doing too well. We need to sort the ones in between, in in the middle here, and get them to pass. And everybody else is kind of irrelevant. So I think you talk about this algorithm. I would say the school system probably doesn't help that at all. And uh, no, no, not at all. Um, school definitely favours a very particular type of type of child, doesn't it? Even if you know, there are some people, I mean, actually, most people were not born to be able to sit on a chair for eight hours a day. It, I, I had a, I was doing a workshop on Saturday and there was a lady who came who, who was a teacher at a school and we were talking about the idea of physiology and I, and I said how old are the kids that you're teaching and they were they were very very young and I said how easy is it to get them to to sit still she said oh it's a, it's a bloody nightmare exactly because we 
we're not we're not built for sitting but after a while that gets conditioned into us doesn't it it's the idea of okay not only if 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 you've got a very very good a logical brain and you can calculate mathematics and science and you can write well well that's that's brilliant but that's that's really just for the people who have been able to fall in line with sitting and learning with being able to somehow take in information in a very very passive state it doesn't matter who you are if you're sitting down not talking just listening you're in a much more passive state and not able to learn as much as you would be if you were actively getting involved in something and um, so really school favors the people who can learn best in a passive state, I think. Um, and that's something that needs to change. The reason that school tables are lined up the way that they are is it was actually, I think it was about a hundred years ago. It was to get people in line for getting ready to work at factories. That, 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 that was the main reason for most of it. So all right, I guess we could, we could delve into a whole other topic of conversation about education, but the education system is one of the things that have changed the, the least in the last century, which is mad because in a time where the environment has changed so much, it is the thing that needs to change by far the most. And um, when it comes to physical, emotional awareness, that's a big one. Um, because cause it goes back to what we are saying at the beginning, doesn't it? At the moment that someone understands as an individual what their skills or their talents or their purpose, or even just the way that their personalized biochemistry works, whether it's what food is right for them, what subject they're more likely to become more acquired to because of the way their brain is wired. Well, then we can have a thriving society where people are, are living in line with their skills as opposed to people who are just trying to continuously compensate for their weaknesses. I, w- I would say some countries that probably, well, they've either gone that way or, or very much in line would go in that would be the the Japanese uh, Scandinavians and then I was fortunate to to live in Belgium where they've got a free tier system of education which is probably better suited to to certain um, educational needs be it obviously you've got your mainstream you've got a system that they call uh, see if I get this right can remember technical so it would be more uh, you, if I remember rightly, science, math. So you are not not. I wouldn't say required. Probably too strong a word, but you are more probably in the essence of maybe kinesthetically learning and, and very much hands on. And then you've got the tier below that is professional. So teaching people trades. So they're very much okay. They got a little in that. In their case, would be French and probably math. And I'll, and if we probably take the British necessity here now obviously you need to get your GCSEs in English and math to be able to progress in life which is uh, at times I think 10 and a 15 16 year old kid you need to work at this uh, because the adult knows best because we know what that rise because if you don't do these you're possibly going to regret it five to ten years and have to do it anyway Mm. better to get it now than later on having to do it again and not not well hate hating except for is too strong a word but um reflecting on the decisions you made at a younger age and being annoyed with yourself yeah and and there, there's something i think one of the biggest myths at the moment that seems to be going around that people i think are maybe starting to slightly twig onto is that achievement and fulfillment are not, are not the same thing mm. 
Um, so, so again, we're wiring kids to say, and, and it's the standard Western blueprint, isn't it? Where you say, okay, go to school, you get some good grades and you're going to be all right. And then you go to college and then you're going to, you know, get some good grades there. And then you go to university and then, you know, make sure you learn the odd language, maybe, you know, get a musical instrument because that will look good on your CV. And then you get a good job. Make sure you keep getting promoted and you get to climb that ladder. And then you obviously got to get a really good relationship, maybe get a couple of kids and then you can settle down at 35 and then on your 35th birthday or your 40th birthday, what generally happens then is a, a man knocks on the door, door opens, and he says, there you go, there's happiness. <laughs> now, <laughs> that just doesn't work. Um, and that, that, that's why we're one of those countries where people seem to be getting midlife crisis because we seem to be doing things expecting that once we've achieved that certain thing, yeah, we feel great for about five minutes, maybe three months tops, but then we start to chase the next thing, never really learning how to be fulfilled in the present moment. And I think that's probably the biggest thing that kids need to learn. Um, and it's, it can take years and years to learn. Um, and you can do it through all sorts of different methods. But being able to be fulfilled and then being able to enjoy the journey of achievement, I think you've won the game then. Whereas if you're continuously looking to achieve, well then... I don't know, you're always looking ahead. You're never actually enjoying what the hell you're doing it all for. Um, sorry, I went a little bit philosophical then, didn't it? <laughs> a little bit, little, bit, little bit of a dirty tangent. Sorry about that. No, I think, I think you've got it. It's, you touched uh, to the right point there. I think you don't look at things in, in that way, I think, in the modern sense, because like we touched upon the educational system is all about results. So you're always trying to achieve whatever grades there might be. Uh, it's going to be case by case. But, and this is probably where I think everybody can resonate with the, with the, the comment, is no child, be it adult or child themselves now, is actually f- f- well, full of fulfillment when they're actually trying to do that because, well, one, stress. Uh, are you going to actually achieve those? So, what, so there's all the mental state all that brings uh, and the connotations thereafter because oh, I, I can kind of have a sigh of relief because I've got my grades. Now I can move on to the next part of my life or that regret because you, you've underachieved because of what a system has put in place. Yeah. And what's interesting though is, is before you see children start that school system or they, they, they start the the achievement condition, if you like, children are the most fulfilled people on the planet. <laughs> you know, you give, you give a child anything and they'll be happy. You'll see children, they'll be the most present creatures on the planet just playing. Um, so so being, understanding fulfillment isn't too difficult for a child because it's born with that capacity. But the moment that we start to say, whoa, what are you doing? Stop playing for a moment. Look towards the future and try and get this. And then you're allowed to have that feeling that you already have. It's a, it's, a, it's a weird, weird dynamic. And, and again, you, you only have to look at the way that people are suffering nowadays. Um, and it might not be in the extreme suffering, like extreme depression, extreme uh, anxiety. But even if, if, if you're stressed, it's your body just trying to tell you that something's wrong. And very often we've just forgotten how to play or be fulfilled. But how, if we kind of use the example of Britain now, how could we actually go about changing some of that? Because... It's a system that is obviously de- well more than decades old, mm. 
but how do you kind of go out to kind of change it to to change it for the well-being of well, the future generations we could probably coin it when the importance isn't the importance in terms of well we'll say secondary school now there isn't that importance on physical education being on par with the other subjects and obviously that is if you take it you, ch- you change the wording of maybe what it could be called as a subject yeah. in the long run and future once you become an adult or, or later life it is more important than all the other subjects at school yeah um, I think it's just it's probably just bringing out more and more awareness it's um, you know, it, it, it's even difficult so I'm in the personal development sector and I deal a lot with um, mental states if you like and you know, cognitive behavioural therapy for example has only just started really becoming a more commonly used term this has been going for 50 years I think thankfully with the way that technology is progressing the latest innovations um, are starting to come out quicker so I think when it comes to the growth and the awareness of the things that work or the philosophies that work, like the like being able to learn to be fulfilled or the emotional and the physical education that we all need, um, I think, thankfully, because we're living in a time where technology is rapidly progressing and getting the word out there is becoming easier, hopefully instead of taking 100 years to move an inch, I think the next 100 years we could be, you know, we, we, we could be moving feet we could be moving miles um so i think it's just to keep doing th- things that we're doing and I, and hopefully it won't get to i mean it's the, it's the way that things are going at the moment where things are becoming such an issue where people are actively having to look for the answers but you know just for the listeners here don't forget that the moment you pull your phone out of your pocket you're attached to the most resourceful item on the planet you know, you could ask any question in human history. If you're really willing to ask the right question, you could get the most extraordinary answers with that. So stop looking at those bloody videos of cats. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think, but then most people aren't going to do that really, Lester. Are they going to, I think because, and I'm going to say that this is straight, straight away, it's probably a generalization. Most people are willing to take the information that they're given from a, a third party source, as opposed to go look for it themselves and questioning things. And mm. um, th- then we need to have better examples out there. Um, because if you're, if you're following someone who is, um, I don't know if, if they look like crap, if you can see they're unhealthy in their, in their mental states and their physical well-being and their standards and their relationships and their finances, holistically, spiritually, if you can see that someone's miserable and they're using a certain pattern and then you've got this guy over here who is the opposite of that, then it's not going to be too difficult to make a decision to who you want to be more like. Um, so in that case, I, th- I think... Yeah, be, again, it goes back to something I said earlier. It's, it's be the example that people want to see in that moment. And then they'll ask, they'll ask for you to be their teacher. Yeah. Of course, very Gandhi-esque. Sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm, you're ripping me into a philosophical tangent tonight. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> and my final question for you, Lester, before we wrap up the episode. If you had to summarize what we've been speaking about tonight into one sentence, and I know this is very difficult, and I don't think anybody today has managed to do it. So obviously take as many, uh, well, we'll say paragraphs to answer the question. 
for for one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Um, it's, it's a difficult one. I think it would be to to understand the game that you're a part of. So so once you actually understand what you are physically, once you understand what you are emotionally, um. What you when once you understand what your purpose is or what you're really after, well then you've just found the rules of the game that you're willing to play. Whereas if you don't really understand the software that you're in, if you don't understand the hardware, if you don't understand the education system that you've been brought up in, if you don't really understand the rules that you've been playing so far and the rules that you actually want, well then you're gonna be playing a game where someone else is, is making the rules for you. So I think it's just, it's heightened awareness of your conditioning, of yourself physically and emotionally. And once you know that, then, then you can start to play life on your terms. So Les, uh, once again, thanks for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Yeah, thanks ever so much for having me. It's been a blast. It's been my pleasure. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast.